Yeah, we've had an incredible... Speaking of joy, last night I enjoyed a time around my dinner table with a couple of saints, giants in my life. Tom and Jan Ewald uh, were leaders in my home church where I grew up in Lincoln, Illinois. Um, I don't have to tell you stories about Tom and Jan. You've actually heard them. You just didn't know that they were in the story. If you were here for Easter services this past year, you actually heard me tell a story about a moment after my mother's funeral, a moment I fell deeply in love with God's church, a birthday cake. Jan is in my mind's eye in that story. So is Tom. Here's why. Tom actually officiated my mother's funeral. He preached my mom's funeral. This is a couple that um, modeled Jesus well for me when I was a child. They're still modeling Jesus well for me. I want to uh, invite you to just enjoy this message. Tom's message he brings today as a guest preacher fits well into this Jerks of the Bible series. He is a bit of a subject matter expert on Judas Iscariot. You talk about a jerk in the Bible, right? Tom's actually written a book. I'll talk more with you about that later. Uh, Tom is a psychologist. He actually taught psychology for like 50 years at Lincoln Christian College, my alma mater. Uh, he was also the dean of students. He's got some great stories surrounding that. Um, and uh, I, can I just invite you right now, would you join me in giving a warm venture welcome to Tommy Walt? Thank, thank you, Stan, very much. Thank you. I'm not often asked, as a matter of fact, I'm never asked to preach a sermon on Judas Iscariot. This was the first I've ever been asked. Now, I've talked about Judas and, of course, my book, uh, Far and Wide. But uh, churches don't ask you to come and preach an uplifting, inspiring sermon about Judas. Could you, would you do that? Well, don't you know uh, he's kind of a jerk uh, when you... <laughs> when you uh, consider the story. And so uh, this is kind of a stallion I'm breaking in this morning, actually, at Stan's request. And I appreciate it, thank you. But it makes me think of a sign that hung in front of a Texas dude ranch advertising horses for horseback riders. And it said, we have horses for everybody. We have for tall people, tall horses, and for short people, short horses. For fast people, we have fast horses. For slow people, we have slow horses. For people who have never ridden a horse, we have horses that have never been ridden. <laughs> <clears throat> never been ridden. Jerks of the Bible. Okay, Judas and the Criminal Mind. This is, of course, my book and uh, the picture on the front of the book. And <clears throat> I went through hundreds of pictures of Judas Iscariot by artists and sculptors. The most common picture painted of Judas is of course the kiss, the be <clears throat> betrayal kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the most common. The second most common is Judas returning the money, attempting I think to pass the blame and responsibility back on the Jewish leaders. It didn't work very well, but that is characteristic of an antisocial personality, which is my book. And then the third most common is Judas went out and hanged himself, and some have been captured by, uh, by that. Years ago, I took a, a trip, a group of students, to Caracas, Venezuela, 
and it was the week of evangelism, the week before Easter. Well, the Venezuelans have a practice of stringing wire across from building to building right downtown in Caracas, and they hang Judas that week, and on Thursday night, they set Judas on fire as kind of a symbolic <clears throat> uh, treatment of the uh, Benedict Arnold of the, New, of the Old Testament. So this was the picture that I sent my publisher to print, and they uh, were concerned about copyright, and so they blurred the picture of the Last Supper, but they kept Judas as I had asked them to keep him for two reasons. John 13 describes cryptically, Judas went out and it was night. And this is the only picture I could ever find of Judas with red hair. Stan, you've been to the Holy Land. You ever seen any Palestinians or Jewish with red hair? No, you don't see them. But a little known fact, and you can take this with you because not many people know this, but the term Iscariot, Judas Iscariot, most scholars think that is a geographical location. However, that term in Aramaic, the language of streets in Jesus' day, Iscariot can be translated man with red hair. Only this artist had captured that. And that, uh, so on that basis, uh, the publisher allowed me that picture on the front. Nothing is easier, says Fyodor Dostoevsky, the famous Russian novelist, than denouncing the evildoer, nothing more difficult than trying to understand him. Now first, let me set the stage. This is the Last Supper, and I ask people, find Judas in this. You can count around the table all 11 apostles, but there is one missing. You have to look up in the upper left-hand corner to find Judas. He's going out, as John described, into the night. There's a vacant spot there on the uh, side of Jesus, and this is exactly the way it would have been staged, that scene. John describes it. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which he was speaking when he said, uh, <clears throat> the one I give bread is going to be the betrayer. There was red, reclining on Jesus' bosom, this would have been John, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. He was the <clears throat> disciple Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said, uh, John, uh, ask him, ask him who he's talking about. Who is it? It is the one to whom Jesus says, I will give a piece of bread. Now, I want you to hold that bread concept in your minds as I go along. I'll come back. When I have dipped it in the dish. We have a vacancy there on the right-hand side of Jesus. Judas was sitting at the seat of honor at that table. And add to that the fact that Jesus gives him bread. He treats him as an honored guest at the meal. It's almost like Jesus is saying, Judas, I know what you're up to. This is in your face because I know what you're <clears throat> about to do. So we know that it's Peter who leans over to John and says quietly, the rest didn't hear this conversation. Ask him who. And that's when Jesus says, you watch. The first one I give bread, that's the one who is going to betray me. John 13 I am not speaking of all of you, <clears throat> Jesus said, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He's done something to do me serious damage. Well, what Jesus is saying 
you want to know what's happening right here in this moment, then you go back and you read Psalm 51. Like a laser, he sends that <clears throat> back to Psalm 41. Why Psalm 41? Because this is a Psalm of David, and it's a perfect quote from that Psalm. Even my close friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me, sought a way to destroy me. That man was Ahithophel. In Psalm 41, he was King David's Judas. And 2 Samuel 15 through 17 described the betrayal and the high treason. To betray the country, to betray the king was high treason. In Israel, in Rome, and in the United States of America, high treason is the only penalty, the only crime committed in America that is punishable by the Constitution of the United States with the death penalty. That is how serious a crime we're talking about. Ahithophel, he ate at the king's table. Judas ate at the king's table. He allied with the enemy, Absalom, David's son, who's waging war, trying to get a coup to overthrow the government. He allied with the enemies, <coughs> the priests. Judas did. Guilty of treason <coughs> of King David, high treason, guilty of high treason of the king. <coughs> Ahithophel is exposed as a traitor to David's son Absalom. Exposed as a traitor, Judas is to Jesus, the apostles, and the priesthood. Chose suicide to escape shame. Judas chose suicide to escape shame. It's the perfect example. Now, one interesting fact is <clears throat> the, the question I am always asked at every class I hold on this, why did Judas do what he did? What was his motive? And what did Jesus know and why did and how, uh, when did he know it? Then in Psalm 41, David says, even my close friend whom I trusted. Now, if Jesus is applying this whole uh, psalm to the experience in the upper room, that means that sometime he trusted Judas, which I think he did. You know, why did he choose the apostles? Why did he choose any of the apostles? Well, <clears throat> let's go back. David's personal and trusted confidant was Ahithophel. He left David's table to join Absalom to overthrow the king. He counseled Absalom, now is the time to attack David. He's weak, he's tired, he's been in battle. It's a perfect time. Well, David anticipated that. He put a counter spy among the army of his son Absalom. Hushai was his name. Hushai said, oh, no, you don't want to attack David now. This is the worst possible time. He would fight like a mother protecting her cub. That exposes Ahithophel as a false leader, a spy. Well, he's overthrown. He realizes he has no place to turn. He can't go back to David, and he's seen now as a treacherous spy in the army of Absalom. And so he went home, set his house in order, and committed suicide. He's the prototype of Judas. <clears throat> now, if you <clears throat> go through the New Testament, there are three reasons given for why Judas did what he did in the New Testament. Now, if you ask the 11 apostles, any of them, why did you uh, <clears throat> think Judas did what he did? Their first answer would be this to fulfill scripture. 
Okay, we understand that, but what we want to know is what is going on in his heart and in his mind. Well, greed, for one thing, we know he was greedy. At, the, at Bethany, John 12 describes a woman using very expensive perfume to anoint the body of Jesus. And John points out Jesus singled out Judas as the one caring about the expensive use of that ointment. And he points out Judas. Why, John says, because Judas didn't care about the poor. We could have used that money for the poor. He didn't care about the poor. He was greedy. He even stole from our treasury. He was a thief, John says there in chapter 12. And then number three, the demonic motive. In John 6, we have the feeding of the 5,000 on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus takes the bread and the fish of the little boy, breaks it, and feeds a multitude. Afterward, he preaches that beautiful sermon on John on the bread of life. It was all about bread. He fed them bread. But instead of bread getting into Judas, Satan entered into Judas, and Jesus, after that sermon, it's a year before the crucifixion, Jesus says to, Ju <clears throat> to the 12, one of you, and he doesn't say has a demon, he says, one of you is a devil. That's a warning. A year before the crucifixion, Jesus gives <clears throat> Judas a sound warning if he's paying attention, <clears throat> which he wasn't. A year before his death, Jesus sounds the warning. Instead of the bread getting into Judas, Satan entered into him. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, the Simon, <clears throat> to betray Jesus. All were kept, Jesus says, except the son of perdition. <clears throat> that is really, really strong language in Hebrew, <clears throat> in, uh, in Greek. That is tantamount to saying <clears throat> Judas was born and bred. He was raised up in hell. That is really harsh. Making him a hero? No. Jesus really makes him a villain. Uh, Satan entered into him instead of the bread, John 13. <clears throat> Jesus made three specific appeals to Judas that went unheeded. Was he recalcitrant? Yes. Criminals are re so often recalcitrant. You can't change them because it's who they are. It's not what they do, it's who they are. How do you change that? Nobody in here changes over a lifetime themselves. You could meet somebody 25 years later, meet them again. It's the same person you met 25 years before. That's what the criminal is. He's there. It's who he is. And you don't change that. That's the reason warning after warning. You can put them in jail. You can punish them. It's a revolving door. Let them go. They will go right out and commit the same crime, make the same mistakes again and again. <clears throat> So he was warned at the feeding of the 5,000, one of you is a devil. At Bethany, when <clears throat> Jesus points out, you don't really care about the poor, Judas. You're a thief. <clears throat> and then finally at the Last Supper, <clears throat> one of you is going to betray me. Oh, I'll ask, is it I? They still don't recognize. Was he a good con? That's one of the famous terms for criminals. They call, they call them cons. They don't mean convict. They mean confident. They are very skilled at winning your confidence. They don't look terrible. They look 
like everybody else. That's why people say, well, I can't believe. That's not the person I knew who did that. <clears throat> this is a man, William Kloss, and I, did, I talk about him in the book because he wants to make Judas a hero. Instead of vilifying him, he wants to turn him into a successful con <clears throat> friend of Jesus. And he, said, he takes the word uh, handed over, which the New Testament translates betrayed. Now, it can be translated handed over, but the context requires that word betrayed. He betrayed Jesus. Well, he says he just handed him over to the Jewish leaders in order to get Jesus and the Jewish leaders to sit down and have peace talks. He was out for making peace between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And he goes so far as to dress up like Judas Iscariot. And he go, William Clausen today goes around to churches and talks about turning Judas into a friend and helper of Jesus in the last moment. And this is his book, Judas Betrayer or Friend of Jesus. And that's the most widely researched book I could ever find on Judas. But I think he's got it totally wrong. But he doesn't pay critical attention to our text in the New Testament. This is from my book. <laughs> Excuse me for reading this, but let's look at it. This is why I wrote the book. Basically, Judas' cunning and characteristic criminality. He was a criminal evidenced by over three years of non-detection. He was, he was smooth. Stealing from the disciples' treasury pool, faking concern for the poor, collaborating with the known enemies of his rabbi's teaching, soliciting payment for a co-conspiratorial act of treason, and selfishly, narcissistically, disregarding the impact of his betrayal on the, his 11 associates, that is the other 11, as well as Jesus. Addition, add this, we witness his lack of a plan, characteristic of many criminals, regarding they make 50, an average of 58 mistakes on a crime. Most criminals will. Regarding the potential outcomes of his clandestine and sinister plot and the covert cloak and dagger late night sting in which he helped an army of arresting officers avoid the crowds whose affections Jesus had won and finally, his premature scudding of his apostleship by suicide. And you see numbers next to each one of those. Those are footnotes for scriptures to support that statement <clears throat> in my book. Now, let me say something about Judas' suicide. This is really important, and a lot of people overlook this. Don't you? This is so important. To commit suicide requires three wishes. All three have to be there, or it will not happen. Wish number one is the wish to die. Now, a lot of people wish to die, but they don't have wish number two, the homicidal wish, the will and the wish to kill. It requires that wish for a suicidal person to carry out the act of suicide. Then number three is to apply those two and self-inflict the homicide and suicidal wish. All three are required. Now, for that reason, because they carry a homicidal wish, Judas did not care if it was going to cost Jesus his life. Jesus had told them emphatically from Caesarea Philippi a year before the crucifixion, I'm going to Jerusalem ultimately to die. He got started that moment, in that moment to get them ready for his death. They didn't really get it. They never seemed to get it. But... <clears throat> 
Wish number two, the homicidal wish is what makes them dangerous. This is the reason you read so often in the news of someone who shoots his own family and then himself. Because he's homicidal. He has to be to kill himself. And so was Judas. Sin is always bigger than the power to explain it. Now, this is the point at which in my classes at school, I would say, write this down in your notes. I want you to have this in your notes. <clears throat> and uh, to get them to do it, I would say, this is going to be on the test. <laughs> then you have at least 85% of freshmen's attention. Sin is bigger. Why, Judas, did you do what you did? 2 Samuel 12, 9, I think gives a perfect example of this why. Now, I want to illustrate this. <clears throat> As was pointed out, I was dean of students for 40 years on our college campus. During that time, I was chairman of the discipline committee, which meant if a student had gone wayward, we hauled him before the committee for the committee's decision and the penalty. And I would say to the committee, now you're going to ask the student, why did you do what you did to get you into this trouble? Now, it needs to be asked, but you're not going to be happy with the answer. Because I've heard, I think maybe I've heard them all. And their excuses, their rationalizations, their cheap uh, attempts to dodge the bullet, once in a while they will admit fault, once in a while. But so often, you'll never hear a satisfactory answer. Why? Because sin is bigger than the power to explain it. What's really interesting in the field of psychology and psychiatry today is psychiatrists don't have a term for this. They borrow a term from us. They say they must just be evil. I've heard psychiatrists, I've heard police, I've heard social workers exclaim that at the end of a crime, describing a crime, they must just be evil. Evil is not a psychological term. It's nowhere in the statistical manuals or the diagnostic manuals of psychiatry today. That word isn't there. I taught psychology for almost 50 years through 16 different textbooks, <clears throat> the, the, most the widest leading textbook in America on psychology, that word never appears in a psychology textbook. Evil. They must just be evil. 58 times in the Bible, the word evil. Psychiatry gets that word from us because they don't have a word in psychiatry big enough to handle some horrible, horrible crimes. Well, we'll let them use our term, evil. Yes, that's what they are. Why? That's always the question we ask. That was the, this is illustrated perfectly in the story of David. After David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet comes to David and gives him what I call the most powerful parable in the Old Testament. Go back and read it. It's right there in that chapter of the ewe lamb. And then he says, David, you are that man. You are the thief I've described in this parable. And then he really lays it on David. This is what he says. David, God anointed you. That Hebrew word for anoint is Meshah. Our word translated Messiah. He made a messianic figure out of you, David. And incidentally, the tomb of David is one of the most important places for Jews in the city of Jerusalem today. The tomb of David. That word, Meshah, is translated in the New Testament, Christos, Christ. 
It's anointed. David, the oil of, a hev of heaven God used to anoint you, he christened you king. He united the northern and southern kingdom. No one had been able to do that. He helped you defeat the Philistines. No one had been able to do that. You inherited a harem. You inherited the wealth, the, <clears throat> all the accumulation of good, good things from your predecessor. David, you had everything going for you. And had you wanted more, had you asked God for more, he would have given it to you. Why did you do this? Do you know what his answer was? Well, she was beautiful. Well, I just wasn't thinking. I have sinned. That was David's answer. That is the answer to the question why. We choose behavior, but we don't choose the consequences. And then comes gospel. Grace is always bigger than sin. You can preach about that. In Jesus' own words were words of indictment. One of you is a devil. You are clean, but not all of you, John 13. He who eats with me has lifted up his heel against me. None perish but the son of predation born in hell. Woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. <clears throat> son of man, Jesus' favorite self-designation. Somebody says, well, that denotes his humanity. No, that, that denotes his, his divinity. The son of man is a divine figure in Daniel 7. That's the reason Jesus takes that son of man from the divine figure in the book of Daniel, his favorite self-designation. It would have been good for Judas had he never been born. Should he have been aborted? That's almost what Jesus is saying. It had been better had he never been born. But he's not pro-abortion, I don't think. <clears throat> Here is the watershed moment, I think, for Judas in the New Testament. The, <clears throat> Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a colt. Not a stallion. He's not bearing a sword. He's not a warrior. What kind of a king is he? Well, in that moment, Luke describes it. He was drawing near to Jerusalem, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples, the whole multitude, <laughs> began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace, shalom in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to stop it. <clears throat> By making him king, don't you realize it would jeopardize his life? And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. There are two Greek words in the New Testament for weeping. I didn't know this until just recently when I preached a sermon on the triumphal entry. The first one is in John, the shortest chapter and verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. One verse. At the grave of Lazarus, Jesus wept. That's a, one Greek word. There's another one here when he weeps over Jerusalem. Only this time it's a different word and it needs to be translated, he literally sobbed. What made him sob? Saying, would that you had heard that you had known on this day the things that make for 
shalom, peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know who was paying you a visit. This is what Jesus was describing. He wasn't coming to Jerusalem to rescue the city from the Roman oppression. He was coming to talk about its destruction. And Judas says, we're not going to win this. We're fighting a losing battle. Let me see if I can figure out some way to benefit from this for myself. This is what Jesus saw, and he wept. He sobbed. Oh, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you together under my wings as a hen doth her brood, and you would not. Oh, he wanted Jerusalem but Jerusalem would not welcome him. Judas is accompanied by a great multitude. This is what Andy Warhol refers to as 15 minutes of fame. You know, probably everyone here in this room at some time or another will have something happen to them or engage in something that would qualify for our headlines. That's your 15 minutes of fame. Most of you will experience that at some time in your life. This was Judas' 15 minutes of fame. Accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders. Luke says, a multitude came and the one uh, called Judas, one of the 12, was preceding them. The biggest moment in his life, what's he got? He's got this parade behind him. Does he look like his chest is puffed out? The biggest moment in a narcissistic life, Judas then having received the Roman cohort. You know what a cohort is? That is 400 Roman soldiers and officers from the chief priests. That is the temple guard as well as the Roman soldiers and the crowd bearing torches and weapons, and that word weapon, we would say like ball bats. There's a cohort. Roman soldiers armed to the teeth, they're ready for war. Judas failed to report, my rabbi is a pacifist. He never rode a stallion. He never wielded a sword. He's a pacifist. You don't need all this military armada to arrest him. Still as of old men by himself is priced. For 30 pieces of silver, Judas sold himself, not Christ. Now, did Judas repent? Now, I have eight, eight arguments in my book. He repented eight arguments that he did not genuinely repent. I think the preponderance of evidence is he did not genuinely repent. There are two words in the New Testament, one for repentance. That's the word metanoia. That's a change of mind. You turn around and you decide you've been going in the wrong direction. I've got to go another way. But there's another word that is simply translated regret. He regretted what he had done. And when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, saw that it was a capital crime, oh, come on, Judas, he's been telling you that all along, he felt remorse, that's metamelami, that's the different word, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Well, he's not going to be a witness then at the trial for sure because he's now maintaining Jesus' innocence. But what the question I want to ask Judas now is, Judas, what kind of blood did you think you were betraying? 
if not innocent blood? What kind did you think? Sin takes you further than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and costs you more than you intended to pay. One preacher has stated that well. Prodigal theme, this theme of Judas is repeated throughout the Bible. What is a prodigal? A prodigal is someone you love who leaves. A broken covenant promise. Gomer, the story of Hosea's wayward wife, he even paid <clears throat> Gomer's paramours, her lovers, to protect her from harm, hoping, praying, waiting for her to come back. Oh, how he wanted her to return. Israel, God's wayward child. Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's two sons who were engaged in sex at the, <coughs> with women at the door of the tabernacle. The prodigal son in the New Testament <coughs> whose father waited until he returned and then embraced him with open arms. The seven churches of the book of Revelation, all of them wayward churches. They were prodigals. Demas, Paul says, Demas has left me having loved this present evil world. And then, of course, Judas. In each is a longing parent, a jilted spouse, a broken family, a broken marriage, a shattered relationship, a broken heart. Each echoes the heartthrob of God, which I think is one of the <clears throat> Mount Everest of passion in the Old Testament, Hosea chapter 11, when the heart cry of God is heard in the heart cry of Hosea. How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? My heart recoils within me. My compassion is kindled. <clears throat> All 12 apostles forsook Jesus in Gethsemane. 11 returned and were welcomed. Judas could have been among them had he returned. Peter returned. Judas, his arms waited with <clears throat> open to receive you. This tragedy is repeated in the experiences of those today who judge their own unworthiness. I've heard confessors say, Tom, I know what the Bible says about God forgiving me, but how do I forgive myself? It's waiting. Jesus, with open arms, grace is bigger than our sin. <clears throat> Those who judge their own unworthiness to be beyond the reach of Jesus, know it's never beyond the reach. For this, my son, <clears throat> for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Now, sort of wrapping it up, what I call the great refusal, or the great rehearsal, I'm sorry, the great reversal. It was Friday. Sabbath was coming. The sun was about to set. Jesus at 3 o'clock in the afternoon cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished. Almighty God informs the world at that moment who really is orchestrating this event. The kingdom of God would not be deterred, not by Judas, not by the Roman soldiers, not by Herod Pilate. None of them could stop the kingdom coming. Not even death, not even Jesus' death. Not betrayal, not murder. And God sounds his rage in that moment. It's described in the New Testament, the heavens blushed, 
the sun covered her face, rocks were split, the temple veil was rent from top to bottom, graves were open and dead people walked the city streets of Jerusalem. The earth trembled, it quaked midnight at three o'clock in the afternoon and a Roman soldier cries out, I think this was the Son of God. All nature stood horror-stricken as the Son of God expired upon that cursed tree, bearing the derision and the chief of the chief priests and the scribes who said, well, others he saved, but himself he cannot save, not realizing the truth they had just spoken. By saving others, he chose not to save himself. He could have, but he didn't. They thought they knew that he was, what they were doing. They thought they were putting an end to it. Kill him, torture him, crucify him, it'll all be over. No, it's not all over. They had no idea what they were doing. Nobody in that crowd knew what was really going on in that moment. Nobody. The Roman soldiers didn't know. The apostles didn't know. The Jewish leaders didn't know. Jesus' own family did not know. In God's great universe, Jesus Christ was the only one who knew what was happening on Calvary. And then comes the great reversal. Sunday morning, the sun rises. The S-O-N rose never to set again. The great reversal. Years ago, <clears throat> I had opportunity to uh, a conference in St. Louis, Missouri. <clears throat> I was a college administrator and college and university administrators from across the country were meeting in St. Louis. The evening speaker <clears throat> uh, after the banquet was the president of Theolo uh, um, Asbury Theological Seminary. And he said, the students of Asbury will not have to record in their diaries what happened this last week. They will never forget it as long as they live. Because we had a speaker in our graduate chapel last week from Romania. He was a Christian preacher in Romania. He had been arrested by the communists. He had spent <clears throat> weeks and months being interrogated and tortured by the communists to convert him to socialistic communism. And he stood, the, he stood his ground. Eight, 12, 14 hours sometimes a day, he was tortured and interrogated day after day. For eight months, he got to the place where he finally said, I can't take anymore. He said that night he decided he was ready to cave in the next morning. And he had a voice that spoke to him and said, read. And he said, that was crazy. They burned all my books. But I, he said, I had one book left. And it was a book by E. Stanley Jones entitled Abundant Living. And in that book was a chapter set aside entitled Life in the Cross. And it described how Jesus took all the sin and the suffering and humiliation of the world upon his shoulders and bore it to Calvary victorious. And the next morning he went before his interrogators and they said to him, well, pastor, we're not able to change your mind. We're just going to have to kill you. And he said, you have your ultimate weapon. Well, I have mine. Your ultimate weapon is to kill me. And when you kill me, 
I will use my ultimate weapon. My ultimate weapon is to die. Because when you kill me, you will sprinkle my blood on tapes and recordings of my sermons that will be played and replayed again and again all across Romania. And his captors, the news went, he said, through the underground that night, said, well, the pastor wants to be a martyr. Well, we're not stupid. We're not going to kill him. And they set him free. And he said he stepped out into the sunlight of freedom and he remembered the words of Jesus. He who saves his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. <laughs>